77% of the trials, the rate of severe adverse events were higher for the experimental arm than the control arm. Hello and welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Navjoit Lada, Head of Scholarly Comment. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that one of the BMJ's big areas of interest is transparency in research, from our involvement in the movement for all trials to be published uh, to our campaign for open data. Without transparency about the results of clinical studies, we don't have a complete picture about the benefits and harms of treatment. And that means that patients can't make informed decisions about whether to receive a treatment and doctors' ability to prescribe treatments with confidence is undermined. A recent analysis article published on bmj.com explores these issues as they relate to trials of cancer drugs and takes a close look at how harms are reported in the trial publications. I'm joined now by one of the authors of the paper, Dr. Bashal Gyawali, MD-PhD and medical oncologist from Nepal and currently working at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Vishal, thank you so much for joining us. Can you first tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in this topic? Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist from Nepal, and uh, now I'm working in Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, but I was trained in Japan, and, and this study we conducted while I was uh, doing my oncology training in Japan. Uh, so whenever we used to go to the oncology conferences and whenever there was a presentation about a new drug, uh, a new cancer drug, um, in almost all cases, the concluding slide would say uh, the treatment was safe, or the treatment was feasible, uh, the toxicity profile was acceptable, the toxicity profile was tolerable, uh, and uh, or any one of these uh, generalized terms to describe the toxicity of the cancer drugs. And uh, then we used to go back and while we were using the same drugs in our patients, we didn't find those drugs to be that tolerable or that acceptable. Um, So we were wondering whether uh, the drugs were actually tolerable or feasible or or who decided whether the uh, toxicity profile was acceptable or not. And then, uh, we thought maybe we need to go and look at the journal publications because we thought the journal editorial process and the review process is is, is very strict and the concept uh, guidelines say the use of such generalized terms is, is uh, should be discouraged in, in journal articles. So we thought um, we would see uh, an, an honest appraisal of toxicity in the in the journal publications. So we decided to go and look at the journal articles. So, Bishal, tell us a little bit more about what specific terms you were looking for and why they're problematic. So, based on our experience with those presentations and and reading the abstract of of many trials, we had a list of, uh, we we agreed among the authors that uh, a list of the terms that we believe to be uh, generalized terms downplaying the toxicity and, and to be a poor reporting practice. So the terms that uh, we selected was acceptable, manageable, feasible, favorable, tolerable, and safe. Um, And we also had a consensus that during the review of those trials, if we come across a new term that 
we found to be problematic or we found to be downplaying the toxicities, then we would include those terms as well. But uh, during our review, we did not come across any other term besides the six that I mentioned um, in, in various forms. For example, tolerable could be mentioned as well tolerated instead of the specific term tolerable. So uh, we selected these terms because we thought uh, they were downplaying the toxicities of the cancer drug and they were giving a false impression to the readers about uh, the drug being um, having a better risk benefit profile than, than, than what actually exists. One of the other things is that they're, they're subjective as well. I think you make this point very well in yeah. the article that, that, um, that it's, it's the patients who would determine whether or not a, a treatment is except the side effects are acceptable or manageable um so so not only do they sort of obscure the the frequencies that harms occur but they also as you say convey um a subjective impression that hasn't come from the patients themselves um, we know that uh, in during conduct of trial we never ask the patients this question is specifically do you think the toxicities were tolerable do you think the toxicities are acceptable mm, do you think uh, and the toxicity profile is favorable uh, so these are quite subjective terms and it can differ from patients to patients uh, i would agree if in um, during trial conduct we actually asked all the participants to 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 answer yes or no to the question do you think that the treatment toxicities are acceptable and let's say if 60% of the patients said acceptable then we could conclude that okay this drug is the drug has an acceptable toxicity profile to 60% of the participants but we are not doing that we are not asking the patients whether the toxicities are acceptable or not and only patients can determine whether the toxicities were tolerable or not it seems to be a bit um, paternalistic on our part to label these subjective terms on patients and claim that the toxicity these were favorable when, in fact, the patients are suffering from, from severe side effects. No, absolutely. So it's it's a problem for, for several reasons, if you described that trials are using these um, terms. Can you then describe what you found then from, from looking at um, publications? How often were these terms being used? Uh, yes, so it was a big surprise to us because we assumed that uh, uh, these terms would not get through the the scrutiny of the editorial process of the top journals in the world. But to our surprise, nearly 43% of the trials of cancer drugs, and these are randomized controlled trials, nearly 43% of them that are published in the top five journals actually contain these terms that downplay the harm of the drugs and give a false impression of a favorable um, benefit with the um, side effect profile of the drug when in fact uh, the toxicity data may not reflect so. So what we did was for these trials that have contained such downplaying terms, we went uh, to the full text of the article and even we had to uh, get through the supplementary appendix to, to collect the toxicity uh, data for the uh, drug. Uh, whose toxicity profile is being claimed to be favorable versus the control arm. So we are trying to look. Uh, when these trial reports say the toxicity was acceptable or tolerable, uh, even though these are subjective terms, are the toxicities actually lower with these drugs compared to the control arm? Uh, but we found that for 77% of the trials, the rate of 
severe adverse events. So severe adverse event means grade three or higher adverse events were higher for the experimental arm than the control arm. And with regards to serious adverse events, now serious adverse events are, as the term suggests, uh, serious adverse events, uh, they, are, they are actually defined as and those adverse events that can lead to death or life-threatening condition, hospital admission, prolonged admission, disability, permanent damage, congenital anomaly, birth defect, adverse events requiring medical or surgical intervention to prevent one of these outcomes. So serious adverse events are, are of prime concern. And even serious adverse events were higher with the experimental drugs in 84% of the trials and fatal adverse events, death, due to drug was higher in 66% of the trials with the experimental arm. So this made absolutely no sense to us because we are claiming on the one hand that the treatment is safe and the toxicity profile is feasible. And, but when we look at the data, then actually more patients are suffering serious AE, CVAE, or even deaths in the, by being in the, uh, in the, in the drug arm. There was a huge a discrepancy between what was being said using these generalized terms and what was actually present in the toxicity data. Yeah, and it paints a, a, a misleading picture about, about how safe these drugs are. And we talked a little bit about, um, at the beginning, about why transparency is important. But um, it's a particular concern in, in cancer drugs um, because of what's involved and what's at stake. Perhaps you can talk us through some of those considerations. Uh, yes, uh, this is, as you, as you correctly pointed, this is very much important, especially for cancer patients, because uh, these cancer drugs usually, uh, in, in, the, in the metastatic setting, these are usually not uh, the drugs that make a difference between life and death. Because cancer drugs, as we have seen, many many studies have shown that cancer drugs usually prolong life by a couple of months at, uh, at best. So this is always a delicate trade-off for the patient to consider between prolonging life by a few months versus accepting uh, severe or serious side effects from, from these drugs. So uh, whenever we are using these cancer drugs as a palliative intent, uh, which means not curative cancer drugs. So it is always a delicate trade-off for the patient, for the physician, or, uh, so uh, whether or not to continue with the treatment, uh, whether or not to uh, continue with uh, this regimen versus the other regimen that has lowest toxicity profile. So this is always a very delicate uh, discussion um, between the patient and the, and the oncologist. Um, so the bigger problem is whenever these uh, trials are published and they are using these, these type of downplaying terms to describe the toxicities, uh, saying the treatment is favorable or feasible, not only patients, uh, but even the physicians are, are misled because when a new, new cancer drug comes to the market, most of us don't have experience with that drug. Uh, only the people who have done the trials have some experience with the drug, but this drug will be used in so many other uh, centers um, by so many other oncologists that have never used this drug before. So we have we necessarily need to rely on what is being published in the trial publication. And the trial publication says this uh, the, the, the toxicities are quite manageable, it's very well tolerated, and then you use the drug to your patient and you you, you don't see that it's very well tolerated. It's it's uh, very toxic and then um, there is a whole lot of confusion whether we are bad doctors 
whether our patient is a, is a typical patient who suffered from these toxicities or whether actually the toxicities uh, happen very frequently and, and we are just misled by the publication. So you go and look at the, at the toxicity data and then uh, you see that actually the toxicities were not that manageable. And in, in one way, a, a, a very sad thing to discover for us during the conduct of this research was that uh, even though these trials use these terms, the toxicity data is not always transparently reported. Uh, by that, what I mean is even fatal adverse events, which means whether the patients died due to the drug or not, even information of such huge importance are not always routinely published. Uh, in these trials, which was a big surprise to us. So we had a hard time finding the serious AE and fatal AE data for so many trials. For some trials, it was buried in the in the supplementary appendix, which is fine, we could access that. But for some trials, it was not published anywhere. There was no data on how many patients died due to the drug, not at all, or how many patients suffered serious adverse events due to the drug. So we had to write an email to the corresponding author of those trials and we had to ask how many patients died due to the drug in a trial and sometimes the responses were so surprising the the one of the corresponding authors wrote to me back saying this is a confidential information which i cannot share with you that made absolutely no sense because you have a drug you have published the trial of the drug you want to use the drug in cancer patients everywhere, but you say that the harms data from the drug are confidential. So how am I going to going to counsel my patient? If uh, how am I how are the patient and, and I how are we going to reach uh, the treatment decision? Because we don't know uh, if the drug is going to kill the patient. Uh, so what can serious and fatal adverse events be confidential information? That was a big surprise. Well, what's behind that, Vishal? Do you think? Because presumably a lot of um the people studying these medications are are practicing themselves and of course their intention is that is that doctors and patients can make make these clear decisions about treatment so so where do you think this um poor reporting comes in how do you think it comes in uh, honestly mm, I, I i don't know the clear answer but if someone is afraid to report uh, data on fatal adverse events or serious adverse events then I would necessarily assume that the data are not very good. The data uh, are so bad that uh, they don't want the world to see it. And I think uh, a, a huge part of the problem would be when the trial is conducted as um, um, with, the, with the sponsorship or funding from the from the uh, pharmaceutical companies, so that uh, they would necessarily not want uh, uh, to provide the uh, harms data that would uh, necessarily compromise the the revenues of the of the industry, and that is something that we we know well from from other areas is that um, those industry funded trials can often have a very positive spin on results. Um, Actually, that that is a part of our next uh, plan to 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 look at whether the reporting practices are different between. Uh, industry-funded versus academia-funded trials. That that would be really interesting, and we, we look forward to reading that. Um, I mean, what was quite striking about what you found in your analysis is that not only are these terms used quite frequently, but they're used quite consistently. Those those sort of six terms that you you described from the outset, 
Um, so it seems that they're quite they're quite deeply embedded in sort of writing practices and presentations. Would you agree? I mean, I think I think there are there are two folds to it. Uh, one is, as you say, like it has become uh, a habit of of some of the people to use these terms without uh, thinking deeply about what these terms could mean and how it could impact patients. So, um, for the sake of brevity, as as we mentioned. Uh, so, okay, let's just end with, uh, whenever you are concluding the abstract, you, you, you put two sentences. One sentence you put about the if case, you say, we found that drug X improved progress and survival compared to the control. And you need to put one sentence about safety. So what do you write? Uh, so, okay, let's say the treatment was physical. So that could be one explanation. But I think, I think uh, the most important explanation is that uh, uh, we actually uh, are biased towards thinking that the treatment is uh, is safer than it actually is, and uh, or sometimes you know like uh, uh, this has been brought up in, in recent discussions in social media that uh, the trial reports are, are seldom written by the trialist. The trial reports are usually written by the sponsors, uh, so the sponsors don't have any incentive to to say that the treatment was not acceptable or to say that the toxicity was horrible. So so who would do that? Uh, nobody would do that. So that's why I think we need a strong stance. We need a strong legislation or some culture change to bring this happen because, uh, because it's not going to happen on its own. I mean, considering this poor reporting practice, which we know is poor reporting practice, you described um, earlier on that the consort statement, which helps guide it's a it's a checklist for guiding the the things that should be reported in a research paper you know describes using these um generic statements as being poor reported practice um given that that's known and accepted how do you think we can um address this problem and ensure that the sort of data that's needed to make these informed decisions about treatment are available to the practitioners and patients who need them i think there are uh there are three things that we could do. One is that we uh, should mandate that all these data on toxicities should be published at the time of trial publication. There should be no no um, confidential harms data. That doesn't make any sense. Harms data can never be confidential. So that is one, that is one important aspect. And the other two uh, aspects relate, uh, relate to the uh, argument by some uh, people that uh, whenever you are writing an abstract or whenever you are writing a conclusion, then you should necessarily use these uh, terms because there is world limit and we need brevity. Uh, but for that, uh, we have proposed two solutions in our BMJ paper. One, we, we should ask the patients uh, during the conduct of trial because it's, it's just adding one more question uh, when you are conducting that huge trial. So it should not necessarily be that difficult to include this one more question. Uh, in the trial process. So you just ask the patients at different time frames, uh, do you think that toxicities are acceptable to you? Or do you think the treatment is tolerable to you? Um, so that is one way in which we can improve this practice. And, and the other suggestion we have is to actually include quality of life data in, uh, in, the, in the time of uh, publication. Um, because uh, we did another study which we published in another journal looking at quality of life uh, information in cancer drug trials and we saw that nearly 50% of uh, 
the cancer drug trials, they don't even include quality of life as an endpoint. And of those trials that do include quality of life as an endpoint, we see that uh, nearly one fourth of them, they don't publish their quality of life data. So we need to encourage more and more quality of life uh, inclusion in, in clinical trials of cancer drugs. So that uh, instead of reporting the treatment was safe or feasible, we can just say that the quality of life was increased uh, in majority of the patients the, or the quality of life remained the same or the quality of life significantly reduced. So that will be a more accurate and more useful information for, for clinicians and patients. I'm struck as you're talking, listening, listening to these solutions about how um, much they relate to another campaign that we have, which is about patient partnership. And one of the um, focuses of that campaign is around participants' rights in, in research. And um, we're sort of advocating that uh, participants, uh, patients are more involved in the design of trials and uh, making sure that what matters to patients is measured in the trials and that um, participants are informed about the results. And I think that those kinds of measures can go some way to ensuring that these these patient important outcomes and ways of running the trial are are captured and implemented. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. And I think... Uh... Uh, a, a huge responsibility falls uh, and falls to the journals. And as as we as we saw with uh, uh, you know registering of uh, trial protocols, and if we can mandate these things, then then I think change can happen immediately because everyone wants their their trial to be published in big journals. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point. I think more and more journals are moving towards uh, mandating at least data data sharing and, and uh, asking trialists to make their data data available at least on reasonable requests. So your example of someone saying that that, that data is confidential should, I hope, not happen um, going forward. But you're right, these, these things can't can't happen soon enough. Um, Michelle, if listeners want to follow um, these issues and others in cancer trials in more de- more detail, what what can they do? I know that you're you're very active in um, discussions about sort of transparency and reporting in trials, particularly on Twitter. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, uh, I'm I'm active on Twitter. Uh, the listeners can follow me at at oncology under Bob BG. That's my Twitter handle, and I also have a blog in eCancer. Uh, in which I uh, publish and I discuss all the uh, efficacy versus uh, toxicities and other issues with cancer trial publications every month. So they can follow my blog in ecancer.org. I, I, well, I think I think those kind of efforts of you know um, discussing trials and um, you know like podcasts as well. I know there's there have been a lot of new podcasts recently as well where these issues are discussed more widely. They're very helpful at kind of. Uh, setting out what the issues are, where the problems are, and raising awareness of them. So, so it's it's great that you're you're doing that work. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think I think uh, um, like in 2018, uh, there has been a huge uh, change uh, in the way uh, the, these discussions happen. So we have moved beyond uh, the traditional boundaries of. Uh, getting into a journal to just voice some of the concerns uh, about some of the trials, as we have seen so many people saying that mm, the latest editor that they send is is being rejected, and even if it's being accepted, the the uh, letters are not being replied uh, correctly. Uh, it's not being replied in time. So 
um, I think this is a very good sense that we have moved to real-time discussions and uh, so using social media and podcast uh, uh, as you mentioned we have been discussing about these trials as they are being published as they are being presented at conferences so I think this is a big positive sense uh, which we should all embrace um, and uh, I would actually like to congratulate BMJ a lot uh, for being uh, an exemplary journal in this regard with uh, uh, I, you know like you have this uh, rapid responses in which the uh, readers can can respond to any article in, in in real time without having to wait through uh, the editorial process and uh, and waiting to to see the response in three four months by which time the article has already been uh, read by so many other people and, and uh, as we we are having this this uh, interview and this podcast and and and, and the fact that the BMJ is not afraid to uh, to lead the change uh, in so many ways, including open peer review process um, and and uh, publishing articles that that critique uh, the the so-called standards or the norms in in publication. So I'd, I'd really like to uh, thank uh, the BMJ, and I'm proud to be a part of it. Well, thank you, Bashal, for being a part of it. Um, we're very grateful. You've been listening to Bashal Gyawali talk about language. That article, Reporting Harms More Transparently in Trials of Cancer Drugs, is now available on bmj.com. If you enjoyed this and are interested in how we talk about things, then keep an ear out because we'll soon be debating cancer diagnosis. It's time to stop using the C word. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find our full back catalogue on bmj.com forward slash podcasts. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. That's it for this week. I'm Navjoit Lada. Thanks for listening.